kind of all about thinking about farming not on a yearly basis scale, but on the decade and the multiple decade scale, which I think these guys are doing a great job of. Welcome to the 311th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Hannah Breckbill and Emily Fagan are self-described moochers. Okay, that statement needs a little explanation. The cousins operate Humble Hands Harvest, a 22-acre farm near Decorah in northeastern Iowa. Their main source of income is the two acres of organic vegetables they raise for a CSA enterprise, as well as sell through a farmer's market, local food co-op, and to restaurants. They also sell lamb meat direct to eaters. This land is in the middle of the Driftless region, less than a mile from the upper Iowa River. And not surprisingly, it's extremely hilly. In fact, the two acres devoted to vegetables are about the only flat land on the parcel. So, Almost as soon as they moved onto this former corn ground in 2017, Hannah and Emily began looking for ways to establish other enterprises on it. It turns out these steep acres are particularly suited to trees, and the farmers were intrigued by the concept of agroforestry, which, at its most basic, involves integrating trees into an agricultural system in a mutually beneficial manner. So in 2018, they began planting chestnuts and hazelnuts on a few acres. They've also established a fruit orchard. They've planted the trees in rows, allowing space in between for grazing their sheep herd. Eventually, the trees will not only be producing nuts and fruit that can be marketed, but will provide shade for the livestock, something that's particularly important, as climate change brings with it unusually hot, dry summers. Hannah and Emily are excited about the potential diverse revenue streams agroforestry can add to their farm but they also know putting in such a system is playing the long game. It will take years before they have viable product to sell, and even more years before the trees are big enough to provide shade for their sheep, and thus paying for themselves as natural sources of livestock cooling. So, in the meantime, they are, as they say, mooching income off their thriving vegetable enterprise to help pay for the establishment of the agroforestry enterprises and to provide a consistent income in general. In talking to them about integrating agroforestry into the operation, I was struck at how they're bringing in an enterprise that is all about delayed gratification. That can be tough for a farmer who raises an annual cash crop like vegetables, which produces results within months of those seeds being planted. But these farmers are accustomed to working in ways that don't fit the conventional wisdom of how Midwestern agriculture should be done. For example, the land Humble Hands Harvest sits on was actually purchased with the help of folks in the community who were concerned the parcel was going to be turned into a CAFO. And the operation is now set up as a worker-owned cooperative, offering a possible alternative model for land ownership in the Midwest. Perhaps it's not surprising Humble Hands is based on a big-picture, long-term view of farming and resiliency. After all, Hannah is a graduate of LSP's Farm Beginnings course, where she received training in how to plan holistically for the long-term sustainability of a farming operation. Humble Hand's establishment of an agroforestry system was featured during a recent field day the farm hosted. The event was co-sponsored by the Savannah Institute, which works to help farmers in the Midwest adopt agroforestry systems. It was also sponsored by the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, which promotes long-term regenerative food production and land stewardship 
by helping get beginning regenerative farmers established on ag acres. After the field day, I sat down and chatted with Hannah and Emily, as well as Jen Ripp, an agroforestry educator with the Savannah Institute. They discussed how agroforestry can be integrated into Midwestern farms and the opportunities, as well as challenges, associated with adding such a system to an established agricultural business. Just a note on the recording. At first, Jen, Hannah, and Emily's voices may sound similar. So, as a way to help differentiate them, here's a tip. In the opening minutes of the interview, we start out with Jen describing what agroforestry is. Emily speaks second as she describes Humble Hands Farms' business enterprises. Finally, Hannah is the third person to speak, explaining the farm's somewhat unique ownership structure. We just had a great field day here. We had over a dozen folks here who gave a tour of some of the, how you're integrating agroforestry into this vegetable operation. And I wanted to talk to you about some of the points that were brought up. But before we got into that, I was wondering, Jen, if you could give folks a, I guess, a big elevator. It would be a larger than, than normal sized elevator speech on what is agroforestry, you know, and what, what, uh, what, that entails just what when you kind of describe it to people who don't really know what it is. Agroforestry is basically the integration of trees into agriculture systems uh, for the benefit of both. Um, it mixes kind of conservation uh, with things that are strictly agriculture. So you have things like wildlife habitat and diversity, um, and also a uh, perennial roots in the ground is kind of the main focus of that. So the more roots in the ground perennially, so established roots, um, you're going to have uh, less runoff, less erosion, cleaner waters, cleaner airs. It's tree, trees and agriculture combined. So agroforestry is a silvopasture, which is the integration of livestock with trees. Um, alley cropping, which is the integration of um, annual crops or hay crops um, in between rows of trees. Uh, repairing buffers, which are going to be trees planted along waterways to filter the water and, and prevent erosion. Uh, windbreaks, I think everyone's familiar with what a windbreak is and does. Um, and then forest farming, which are things like um, silvopasture by subtraction. So allowing animals to graze within forest and kind of clear out the underbrush. But forest farming itself would be like um, shiitake mu uh, mushrooms or ginseng or things that can grow under canopy. Before we get into the agroforestry questions, just give a I just need a quick summary of what you got, got going here. What, what you're, what's, what's going on with Humble Hands Harvest? At Humble Hands Harvest, we, I guess we make most of our money growing organic vegetables. Mm -hmm. That's our most of our daily work. Um, and we also have a flock of sheep that we graze around the rest of our farm and are starting some perennial plantings. And, yeah. your, and your market, you have a small CSA, but you do farmer's markets as well. And then direct sell the meat. Is that correct? Yes, we sell our meat and vegetables at the farmer's market, and we have a small CSA. Well, not that small. Sometimes it's almost as much income as our market sales. Mm -hmm. And we also sell a little bit to the co-op here and restaurants and other and, things. And could you just give a brief, the, the ownership situation here is maybe a little different than what people, could you give a brief, Anna, you're the expert on that? Yeah, so we are a worker-owned co-op farm, which a lot of people, when they think about a farm, they think about a family farm. We're a little bit different than that because we are owned by the people who work on the farm. Um, so ultimately, Emily and I are the two employees, the two worker owners of the farm, and then we also have two employees. But 
in theory, someone would work for us for a couple years and then be able to onboard into actual ownership of our farm, which, yeah, we're really excited to be creating this method, I guess, of or uh, way to access farm ownership and, and equity. You know, I just want to, as an aside, I remember talking to you about this years ago, and I found this really a striking idea that you had, which was land access for beginning farmers is so hard, and, and you went through a, a situation here where you're able to get folks in the community to support this. And then once you got the farm, you realize you don't want to go through the same situation a lot of farmers go to is, okay, who am I going to transition this off to in the future? So I thought that was a really neat, just to, to have that idea before you've even maybe planted your first crop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one one benefit or like hopefully it happens with this farm is is that we're able to kind of have this continuous farm and I can retire, Emily can retire, but this farm can keep going and the new people coming in can have all of this stuff, all, all of these markets, all of these trees that are in the ground ready to go and, and be cared for and, and give them the income that they need. So agroforestry, I mean, looking at your vegetable plots here, it's obvious you're really good at what you do and you've gotten some local markets, but why agroforestry? Why trees? That seems almost completely opposite of annual vegetables. Well, we ended up with this piece of land that is 22 acres and we didn't want to grow that many vegetables. And also this land is mostly not flat. Like we fence, we chose like the flat two acres and that was about it. And then we made another tiny place flat so we could have a high tunnel. But this, this particular property is conducive to trees more so than vegetables, I would say. And this is the one that was available. You know, it's not like we had the choice of going around and picking exactly what, what we wanted. This one came up in a serendipitous way and it seems like it's calling for trees. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to maybe fit in with your, you have a sheep operation too. It kind of fits in with that a little bit. Yeah. The sheep can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Happy to, happy to eat anything on any kind of slope. <laughs> so describe what you're actually doing. You, you we, we went out and looked at your chestnuts and hazelnuts and you also have planted a is it a semi-dwarf or mm-hmm. a tree or but t- describe all what we're doing kind of and w- w- some of what the method to the madness is about and when you kind of started doing all this yeah so we started uh, the first trees went in the ground the first year we were here emily planted maybe 30 apple trees um just south of the vegetable field um and then the second year we were here we really delved into bigger scale plantings of nuts. Um, so we, we planted a couple acres of chestnuts and then a couple rows of hazelnuts. And really, you said method to the madness. It's hard, it's hard to know what the method is. Um, mostly it's trying, trying to do something, see what works, mm-hmm. and knowing that planting perennials is a long game. And so it'll take us a long time to see what works. Yeah, basically means that we have to be strategic about about how much of our capacity we invest into those perennial plantings. Yeah, but I think in in the long term, like things are things are pulling through. Um, some of the stuff that we planted in year one, we just saw some our first hazelnuts that we've ever seen on our plants. Um, so that's super exciting. Yeah, stuff is starting to produce, and and so we'll we'll find out um, what what's going to happen. Yeah. 
And just to give people a picture, so we, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's about two acres of, like for the hazelnut or the chestnuts, for example, you have them planted, I think there was a five rows, and there's 30 foot space between them. Looks like you, you, you did have hogs in there, mm -hmm. which kind of helped build the fertility, but now you've got a cover crop, looks like, what was it, oats and rye barley. and barley, okay, mix in there. And then you, yeah, I guess describe, you're doing a grazing system already through there. We already looked at the sheep and what they had done, but if you can describe that grazing. Yeah, we fence the sheep in Electronet and use a solar charger and move them once a day. We just use two lengths of the Electronet and it takes about half an hour or 45 minutes maybe to set up the next one for the next day and mm -hmm. we just move them around. Yeah, and in the thick of the season, once a day is enough, but in the spring and fall when the grass is a little thinner, we would move them twice a day. And the you kind of put, a, you have them in tubes, but to keep the sheep from rubbing, it sounds like you put a temporary cage around them? Yeah, Hannah was putting uh, like a wire cage around the tree tube when the trees are small, because when they're small, they're, the tube can shift around and knock the tree over and, and break it. How big a herd? We have 18 ewes and all of their lambs. 32 so lambs 32 this lambs this year. So this brings up this, this issue of both with the vegetables and the sheep that I find really interesting. And <laughs> Hannah, you were pretty honest about this, that you kind of feel like you're using your vegetable operation, you're mooching off your vegetable operation <laughs> to support your the perennialization of this and the agroforestry. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that that, because it is a long game, and if you were relying on getting, for example, fruit production next year, I mean, it just wouldn't work. But talk about that idea of mooching or whatever word you want to use. <laughs> <laughs> I like the word mooching. I remember that. Yeah, I like that word too. I mean, it seems like if we didn't have the vegetable operation, then we would be much more kind of reliant on getting an income from the perennial crops. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not the like the energy that I want to have around these trees, right? I, I want to have space for experimentation and for learning and for mistakes. And so yeah, we're getting we're getting pretty darn good at growing vegetables and so having uh, and, and we have a lot of capacity and we have a little bit of excess capacity sometimes and that excess capacity we can use both in terms of finance and in terms of labor, we can use toward supporting our perennial operation. Jen, is that something you you work with a lot of farmers and around this region? And is that is that a good idea? Is that something you're seeing that people are kind of mooching off or <laughs> subsidizing their that system with other enterprises in the short term as they play that long game? Yeah, definitely. So this is what I would like consider a macro level alley cropping where like for alley cropping, you plant your trees, you plant your trees in rows, but then you really utilize the alley to grow kind of like your cash crops. So there's corn and soy farmers that do this, um, people that do hay, but then a lot of like annual vegetable organic production can happen between the trees and like the the analogy is uh, the the trees provide this like microclimate uh, for the crops as they grow um, to reduce wind erosion water erosion kind of like pulling up nutrients from deep down in the soil um, and then you know just being under a tree is this cooling climate so Hannah does the same thing kind of similar to Dana Vernis operation where while her actual operation is 
is in agroforestry that provides the cash and kind of like the microclimate for the perennials to come in. Um, and I think a lot of people are doing it that way because transitioning, you have to transition into perennials the same way as like alley cropping transitions to civil pasture. At one point, the trees get big enough that the trees are the main show or part of the main show. Um, and you don't have the space in the alleys anymore to grow broccoli and tomatoes and, and everything that you would be able to do. So it's kind of all about thinking about farming, not on a yearly basis scale, but on the decade and the multiple decade scale, which I think these guys are doing a great job of. Then you can start seeing, think not only using these, the vegetable operation or whatever to kind of subsidize that system or, or get it going but in the short term, but then they can start benefiting shit. Like with the livestock, eventually those sheep will have shade, that type of thing. I think that, it, 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 that's that. what's exciting about the silver, whole silvopastrine thing. I, I yeah. should mention what, what I meant for, for Dana's operation is uh, she raises pigs on pasture, mm-hmm. which is not agroforestry, but that money fuels a massive um, uh, oak savanna restoration that she's doing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, on the outside, it looks like the systems aren't uh, overlapped and, like, complex that way, but, like, economically they are. So, yeah, a lot yeah. of connections. Yeah, that's that whole idea of integrating. And one of the things you folks talked about was integrating. You're, you're looking at putting more native plantings in and looking at maybe grazing native prairie-type systems and integrating that into this whole thing. Yeah, we um, listened to a talk at PFI a couple years ago that was all about prairies, prairies and mm-hmm. how important they are, which we already believed and knew, but it was just an inspired moment. And... Since then, we've been talking about how we can make this farm more of a place for native plants and bring back some of that old ecology. And not a lot of people graze prairie plantings. I asked the woman who gave the talk, and she was like, yeah, sheep might be kind of hard on it. But but we have, our first year here, Hannah threw some seeds around, like some pollinator mix or something, and two or three years later, we're starting to see some things come up and it's really nice. They're like being grazed twice a year and they're totally happy to bloom and reproduce. And it just feels like a fun experiment that has nothing but benefits. <laughs> so walking around here, I was struck at, and I was talking to another a farmer who, who was here at the thing. And cause you talked about how this had been in corn for decades and he was saying, I can't believe this was ever in corn. It is really hilly here. Uh, if people can picture it, it's bluff. We're in the midst of the bluff country. Do you sometimes come out here and look at <laughs> what you've done and what you what you may be doing in the future? But already, just in the past few years, and go, wow! I can't believe this was in corn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we've been converting our vegetable field to no-till, and mm-hmm. we've been applying a lot of compost, and it is. It's just so wonderful to see the amount of change that we can make in the soil with that kind of intensive care for it. Mm. When we came onto this farm, there was basically no topsoil to be seen. Mm. And and there's still parts of the farm that are pretty, you know, ragged. So I can believe it has been in corn because of that. Um, <laughs> That's a reminder. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is... Uh, Yeah, it feels really, I mean, the sheep are like a very slow process for restoring soil in terms of their restoring the cycles of fertility. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I just, wherever we can add a little bit more intensive 
management and care, I think those are the places that really see the benefit. And so that's one of the reasons I like planting trees is, is that we then are paying attention to that spot and, and helping it along. Yeah, and how far are we from the upper Iowa River here? Less than a mile yeah. walk. So that's a big issue too is water quality and that watershed you know that kind of thing but what's been some of the biggest challenges or surprises and I guess with you just in general maybe some of the big challenges you see other folks deal with or surprises but I guess I guess both pleasant and unpleasant surprises I don't know one of the biggest challenges for perennial establishment in agriculture is land access. Um, mm. So right now in Iowa, I think there's a 20-year lease cycle. So you can't sign a lease for the longest lease is 20 years before you have to renew. So when you want to talk about planting a, a chestnut orchard that really comes into full production in like year 10, and then at all of a sudden at year 20, you can be you know kicked off the land. Mm. Um, so kind of the 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 roots of a lot of <laughs> These problems not to make a root pun, but I did. Um, the root of a lot of these problems and trying to think about farming and agriculture on a multi-year uh, a multi-year scale is permanent land access, um, and so that's why I like working with Hannah um, on doing alternative models to purchasing land um, has been really important and kind of. Laying the foundation for a lot of this work, that wasn't, it's not surprising, that wasn't a surprise to me um, as like a former vegetable farmer turned tree farmer, um, land access is hard, but yeah, it gets a lot harder when you have to start thinking about 30 years of the same, of one crop. So yeah, I'm trying to think of like surprisingly good things <laughs> from it too um, but I've just I've just like it, maybe it's not a surprise but I've just been learning about all of the different perennial crop tree crops and bushes available to us around here that flourish in our in our climate and this also isn't a surprise but just like the benefits of the resiliency of trees and bushes and woody mm. perennials um, and I hate to say that like yeah, you know, every every season is a, is a test in like how well these plants are going to survive climate change. But like it is a big filter right now in uh, in changing agriculture to be able to exist uh, throughout climate change. Yeah, I mean, I would echo that. Like land, long term land access is a huge challenge, and I feel really lucky that we were able to kind of bypass that challenge in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I just think about how how many more trees could be on the landscape mm. if we had a different system of, of land ownership mm. and who gets to own land and, and, and what's supported by policy. Yeah, that's the main, the main challenge that I think of. But, but also, like, patience is a challenge. Like, you have to be willing to wait around for a few years. Yeah, and so it's, it's a combination of patience and also, like, willingness to stay in place. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, in terms of surprises, I mean, the thing that comes to mind, not necessarily surprising, but a, a pleasant thing that I have no control over other than making the place is that there are different kinds of birds that live on this farm now that didn't live here when it was in conventional corn. We have bobolinks, we have meadowlarks, we have this house wren that's making a lot of noise. We have, yeah, all kinds of good good beings who who appreciate the work that we're doing well that patience you know especially for a vegetable farmer because you see almost immediate gratification <laughs> so that is a big big issue 
Yeah, the challenge in my mind is maybe not super relevant to this podcast, but I'll say it anyways, <laughs> which for me is the physicality of this work and the like limited resources of my individual body. Mm-hmm. Um, relevant. Yeah, relevant. it's, yeah, I feel like that is the thing that most, I don't want to say gets in my way because I don't want to be thinking about it that way, mm-hmm. but I like really have to think about what I'm going to do and choose not to do certain things because I have limited capacity. And that's really, yeah, really notable because I can think of a lot of things that I would be great to, you know, do, but I I can't do them, you know. That's my my limiting thing. Just in 10 years, 15 years, thinking about all the challenges and the hard work that goes into it, it must help a little bit that you can say this is going to look a lot different then it's just not going to be vegetables again in 10, 20 years. That must be a big incentive, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the like fun surprise of all of this is like, oh, you know, I started doing this because I wanted to grow vegetables, but then it keeps coming around all these other new interesting things that make sense that I get to just start learning about, yeah. you know? It's, yeah. yeah, it's a surprise every time. Agroforestry has been practiced for thousands and thousands of years all around the world. Um, we just, as a country, haven't been practicing it for about the last 70. So a lot of this is a returning to a way that was more sustainable for the planet. And I'm so happy that, I'm so happy it's going to look different here in 10 years. And there's going to be more shade and it's going to be cooler. Um, yeah, it's exciting to see. For more information on Humble Hands Harvest and Agroforestry, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 311 at landstewardshipproject.org. On that page, you'll also find a link to an article and a podcast about the unique way Hannah Breckbill and Emily Fagan launched their farm. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 